Hey, this is actually the last episode of season two of Not What You Think. You can listen to the episodes backwards if you want to. We do not judge you. But if you'd like to hear the whole season from the beginning, you might want to look back for our gentleness in dating episode in your podcast app. There's also some surprisingly heavy stuff in this episode on Impro. It took me a long time to figure out the amount that I should talk about it. I learned, okay, you don't need to tell the person you met at the grocery store. Not everyone in your life needs to know all this stuff. I had to learn about how open to be. This is Not What You Think. I'm Sasha Rosen. Chicago is a pretty cool city for radio people because of, you know, this American Live, the Third Coast Radio Conference, all these really cool radio places that we get excited about. But it's also really exciting if you're into impro, like improvisation. My friend Sophie Long, an improviser, a writer, and a stand-up, she was trained in the Second City Impro School, the same place that gave us Tina Fey, Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell. Only a handful of Australians have been trained there. I know of maybe four. There's her, Michelle Law, a couple others. This is kind of a secret life for you, you know, Sophie? It's hard to explain. Um, what the hell is Impro? (laughs) That is such a hard question to answer, you know. I actually tried to write a blog post on that once, and it is, I guess, Improv is, uh non-scripted performance so not non-scripted theater and it can be anything from theater sports which we do a lot in sydney which is short form games to i've seen a long form improvisation show in chicago that was you know an hour and a half we had improvised shakespeare it's when a group of people or even one person gets up and creates a live event. In Sydney, we've got Theatre Sports School. Mm-hmm. We've kind of got, thank God you're here. Mm-hmm. We, we've got reruns of Whose Line Is It Anyway? This yeah. is not the sort of impro you learned. No, I did come from that in Sydney. I started learning theatre sports, but in Chicago, it's called Long Form, which is not as well known in Sydney. It's starting to get more well known. And that is much more relationship based. It's, it's not short games and short scenes. It will be a 20 minute to a 40-minute piece that's that's far more like an improvised play. Second City is an impro troupe? It's actually a theatre and a school. So there's this three big working theatres and about three smaller theatres every night and then it's a school for writing sketch, for improv and for directing sketch, that sort of thing. It's a sketch writing school. What happens? You just turn up on stage? and Well, <laughs> there's a lot of different types of shows. One of the troops I was with in Chicago was called Improvised Jane Austen and ours was a very specific formula. So we would do a full Jane Austen, you know, a book, but on stage so we would have a dictionary and we would start scrolling through the dictionary we'd say please tell us when to stop and we'd go down and we'd find one word and then we'd find another word so like Pride and Prejudice but we'd just have two random words and then from those two words we put on the entire show which was generally two 35 minute acts all done in the genre and the accent and So there's that sort of thing, which is very structured. And then there are other shows where you show up and you ask for one word. And then from that one word, you create a a full show. Do you think if we threw a word at you now, (laughs) you could still do it? Gosh, I'm out of practice. I can give it a go. We've got producer Samira in here. Could you give us a word? Yes, studio. Studio. Okay, so if I was on stage at this point, you go, studio, what does studio make me think of? Studio, studio. Okay, I'm thinking of a dance studio. I'm thinking of a glitter ball. I'm thinking of a disco, a disco stew from The Simpsons. So now I'm thinking of someone that's sort of out of touch. This is, you do this in your head, but I'm just trying to let you know I'm coming from. So I'd be like, uh, yeah, oh yeah, 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 the good old days. Oh, you, you guys don't even know. You guys don't even know living here, living now. With your with your high full with your buses, we did not have buses back in the day. We, you know what we used we used our we used our feet. We we walked. 
You guys don't even walk no more. You just, you just, you just, you just get in your cars and you just go where you're going. But no, no, back in the day, back in the day, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't sleep. We didn't eat. We just got up and we worked all day. I don't know where I'm going with this. Well, you get to theme, which is one of the things that I love so much about long form is that it's a thematic show. So we would we'd do an opening. You learn to do specific openings and the opening might be monologues like that. One person might take over that character and continue, but then you get taught a lot of openings. And from that opening, you tend to have a theme about what the show will be. So that show would probably be about the attitude of nostalgia or back in the good old days or the break between the generations, something like that. You've had a pretty fabulous career going on in Chicago. For yeah, someone without a permanent visa in the States, mm-hmm. you, were, you were there on a two-year visa, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your career like at this point? Things were going really well. I had graduated from the Second City, the the conservatory, which is their professional program. And I was enrolled in the Second City Music Program, which is the same thing, but you do it singing. And I graduated from Improv Olympic. And so I was starting to perform around the place. I was performing with Improvised Jane Austen. We got into the Chicago Improv Festival, which was fantastic. I was in a show called Rebound, which was a dramatic improvised show, which was the first one ever done at Second City. And I was starting to perform stand-up around the place pretty regularly. You know, things were fantastic. I felt like I was finding my voice. You had a show, you had a city, you had a career. Yeah. And it sounds like you were pretty excited. Oh, I loved it. I had such a great community. I felt like I'd found my troop. I found I'd found my people. It was like I'd run away to the circus and I'd found this amazing, amazing community. Yeah, it was actually improv that made me realise that things were going a bit off the rails. I remember that moment. I was in improvised music class. I was on stage doing a scene and then that scene was cleared and the new scene started and I came in to be in that second scene. And you just don't do that. If you've just been on stage and you're in a group of 12 people, you don't go back on stage again immediately. You give someone else a go. And as soon as I did it, I went, this is not good and I saw other people's faces and they looked a bit worried and then some other things fell into place which is that I'd had huge amounts of energy I'd been feeling really really good I had been doing things I didn't normally do going out a lot more engaging with people a lot more I'd I'd sort of put this all down to the fact that my career had been going really well and that winter was finally over winter in Chicago is like nothing else on earth it's certainly nothing like winter here basically the sun just goes away for seven months That's the way I explain it. There is just no sun. And for an Australian with low vitamin D levels like me, it's just horrible. I used to describe it as I say, I understand girls gone wild a lot more now. Like once you've been through that winter, you just want to take all your clothes off. You You just want to feel the sun on your skin. So yeah, I've been feeling really, really good. I'd had stacks of energy. Things were going great. The other thing was that I'm an atheist and always have been, and I'd started to explore this sort of spiritual side of myself, which is kind of something that happens to you in America. It's they're far more spiritual than we are, and it was becoming, you know, interesting to me to look at this side of stuff. And so I was starting to see the world in this new way, and then the way that I was thinking started to become a bit weird. So I thought that I was the reincarnation of Mary, Jesus's mother. This isn't something that I normally ask people, but have you you've had that before in your life? 
Yeah, I was diagnosed with bipolar 2 about six years ago. And so this was another manic episode that, that I was going into. But it was much more severe than I'd ever had before. And it had been a while since your last yeah, episode. You thought yeah. you were done with this for a while. Well, yeah. I mean, for a long time, my life was about managing my mental illness. It was about dealing with depression, dealing with mania, getting my medication right, all that sort of stuff. But I just had these two years, or almost two years in Chicago, where I'd been good. Everything had been fine. And I just kind of thought I was over with that now. That was a part of my life that I didn't have to deal with anymore. And suddenly, no. <laughs> it didn't matter that I was in a new place. It didn't matter that everything was going well. This was still something that I had to, to manage. So I had some understanding of what was going on, but it was just so much more severe than I was used to. And I think being away from my family and being away from doctors, anything like that, it was easy to let it fester and, and go on. I ended up in a psychiatric unit. I don't know whether everyone will remember this, but there was a plane that went missing over Australia at this point. I was in the news everywhere. That was going on. And in my mind, I thought I'd caused that. It was all linked to the film Donnie Darko in my mind. I thought this plane was going to crash on my parents' house and that I had caused that by leaving them and by having bad thoughts about them. And the thing about having a psychotic break like this is it's very real. It sounds like you couldn't possibly believe this, but it absolutely, it feels as real as gravity and the, the sky being blue. Some part of myself was aware enough to go, this is really dangerous. And I went and talked to my flatmate. She took me to the emergency room. If you are feeling these sorts of feelings, you can always talk to Lifeline on 13 11 14. So I got taken into the emergency ward and <laughs> with all of my uh, necklaces and, and special amulets that I had with me that was helping me read people's minds and all of this sort of stuff. And it was quite clear to everyone else that I was not well. And so I ended up going into a locked ward for 11 days while they stabilised me and they put me on antipsychotics and mood stabilisers. This really interrupted your improved career. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was the worst thing that I could imagine happening. I was so upset by it. I thought that everything had been going so well. It just, yeah, it, it felt like my world was falling apart at that point. But at the same time, I knew I was lucky. You know, I was in Northwestern Hospital and it was this incredible hospital and everyone was really great and I hadn't really hurt myself or hurt others. When you're manic, it's very easy to destroy your life very quickly. You can spend a lot of money. You can make very, very bad choices. It's a little bit, for people who haven't experienced it, it's a little bit like being very drunk. You don't really have control over what you're doing to some degree. So I was grateful and I was grateful that that my insurance was okay. But yeah, it just put this huge hole in everything. I had to stop the course I was doing, the music course, which I loved. And I had to stop performing for a while. And I, I felt, it was the first time I felt very alone. <laughs> I really missed my family. After I came out of hospital, on the other side of a manic episode is a depressive episode. So I fell into a very, very deep depression. Even though I was still in Chicago, it was very hard to leave the house. I was just sleeping all the time. But I just kept thinking, I'll just get a little bit better and I'll get back into it. It was horrible because Chicago is the sort of city where every time I'd leave the house, I'd see someone I knew. And I just didn't want to talk to anyone. I didn't want to have to be a person. And I had to keep pretending that I, well, I didn't have to, but I chose to kind of try and smile and pretend things were okay. One of the other things that happened is that you had to come back home. Mm. And that sounded like it sucked. Yeah. I mean, that didn't have much to do with the, with the mental health issue. That was a visa issue and money issue, which is that I wasn't able to stay in this place that really felt like home. Having to come home far more than the, than the episode was what was very upsetting to me because I just started to make these inroads into this place. As nice as it was to see my family and my friends here, it felt like I had just come to a screeching halt.
when I you know, have talked about it, I, I get people with the absolute best of intentions often saying, well, you know, I've been sad too. Or, you know, I, I had a couple of difficult weeks in my 20s and depression is just not like that. Like severe depression is very, very physical. It isn't just a mental thing once you get to that point. I was, I had what is called psychomotor retardation, which is my movements were slowed down. I had no affect. So my face was very still. I couldn't understand music. I couldn't read books. I couldn't concentrate. You know, that can be quite upsetting when people think they understand. And you said boring as well. Oh, Depression is so boring. <laughs> Depression is so boring. It is, it's just you by yourself in a room with this horrible person that lives inside your head telling you how bad a person you are again and again and again. Once you begin to figure that out, I had cognitive behavioral therapy, which helped me a lot once I began to tease those voices out and to be able to refute them. It, it helps, but you've just got a record on of, of people talking about, hey, remember that terrible thing you did when you were in year six? Hey, you know that everyone hates you. It's just, ugh, it's like, like you're in high school and the mean girls are in your head it's just boring and it's just the same old thing every day at least mania is interesting no i shouldn't say that mania is horrible People with bipolar say this, especially bipolar too. Once you've had depression for so long, it just feels like, oh my God, you know, something's happening in my life. And it's destructive, but gee, it feels like fun after depression. I get both minimization and then the other side of it, which I particularly dislike, which again comes from a good place, is this sort of, you know, people think that I'm a guru or that I understand the human condition more, which sounds like it's a compliment, but it, it makes me feel even more othered. I've definitely had people who sort of, it's almost like I'm their misery memoir, you know, it's like- Misery porn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, vicariously through me, but that doesn't happen very often. You had just had to come back from Chicago mm -hmm. after two pretty successful years of improv, followed by a short stay in a psychiatric ward when the bipolar you've been diagnosed with recurred. This is something that I've, I've actually seen you talk about on stage before. This is why we brought you in here today. You spent some time dealing with the depressive phase, but you've also started up a really cool fiction night in Sydney called Fabulous Monster, which oh, is yes, new and you. kind of awesome. And this is where I first heard you talk about this stuff. But you decided to talk about it about 15, mm. 14 years ago, 2001. Yes. yes, I had my first inpatient stay in, I think, 2001 in hospital and I had that for at that point just unipolar depression but very severe depression and I went into the hospital in order to get electroshock treatment which was very effective. I was so scared before I went to hospital the first time I was terrified and it was one of the best experiences of my life. When I came out I made the decision consciously to talk about it to my friends. It took me a long time to figure out the amount that I should talk about it because when I first got out of hospital in 2001, it was the only thing that had happened in my life because the past two years before I went into hospital was just me being depressed. It was the only thing I had to talk about and I really, in my urge to normalise it and to talk about it, it ended up with me going up to people and going, hi, I'm Sophie, I just got out of a psych ward. You know, da, 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 da. How did that like, go down? <laughs> not well. <laughs> I learned, okay, you don't need to tell, you know, the the person you met at the grocery store. It, not everyone in your life needs to know all this stuff. And it, it actually, I had to learn about how open to be. I did see people looking like, okay, crazy. Yeah. So I learned to back off a little bit. And, and for a long time, it felt like if I didn't immediately tell everyone everything, then I was lying to them about myself. The further I get away and once I got back out into the world and there are other things I was doing, I think I became a bit more balanced in, in how much I talk about it. 
I just didn't want it to be this shameful secret. I didn't want it to be something that everyone had to tiptoe around. And I knew that it was interesting to a lot of people. I know that if one of my friends had gone into hospital, that I would have been really interested in what it was like. Just when you were asking me before, what is hospital like? What is having ECT like? That's electroshock. And I thought, okay, well, those questions aren't upsetting to me. They might be to other people that have gone through it, but that kind of stuff isn't upsetting to me at all. So I talked about it to a lot of my friends. And what I love about that is that that some of them went on to be able to talk to their friends or partners or relatives about it. I had a friend who went through the issue herself and she looked back on our conversations and it helped her realise what was going on. And uh, I, so, so she had bipolar mm, and remembering what you told mm, her helped her. Yeah. Yeah, I think she said that it reminded her of my experience when, and that helped her realise what was happening. It was just in my own tiny little way, because I'm not a public figure or anything, it was trying to normalise it and to just have a thing that happened, you know, a, a pretty horrible thing, but not this terrible, mysterious, doom-filled other world. You know, it's just a medical condition. And you're talking about it pretty easily in here, mm. but how hard is it to talk about normally? It depends on the time and place. In general, it's actually not a big deal for me to talk about most of this stuff. And I really do think, look, if, if I've gone through it, then the one thing I can do that is helpful is to talk about it. I know that Ali Broche from Hyperbole and a Half did a whole thing on depression and that, you know, helped a lot of people. And trying to describe it is difficult, like it is with improv, trying to describe what depression and mania is like. But it's certainly, it's worth it for me to talk about. And most people are fantastic about it. You know, most people are just interested and respectful and terrific. And certainly talking about it on stage, I mean, because that's what I'm working on at the moment is a show which... Hopefully I'll get into the Sydney Fringe or something like that. But a sort of stand-up storytelling show which is about going crazy in America. And the piece that you saw me do in Fabulous Monster is a part of that. Talking about it on stage where I have complete control is actually a lot easier. Stage is super fun for people like me with weird anxieties because you're totally in control. And so for you it was therapy. Mm. The medication is important mm. even though the other stuff is important. The medication mm. needs to keep going. Yeah, unfortunately. You know, in a perfect world I wouldn't have to be on medication. But it seems like having talked to my psychotherapist and my psychiatrist that I will need to be on medication for the rest of my life. And, you know, that's okay. That's just part of it. And I'd certainly, you know, if there's something I would want people to hear from this and to understand is that it's totally okay to take medication. It doesn't work for everyone, but if it works for you, you know, it's not a weakness. It's a good thing to ask for help. And the other thing is just being able to be treated like you're normal. That you don't mm. have to hide it and you don't have to be a guru just for having <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. I think it can be much harder for people that haven't gone through it to know how to talk about it. But if you just, you're listening and you're open, I think that that's the best you can be. Don't assume that you know about mental illness because it's different for everyone. But you know, if someone in your life has it and they talk to you about it, just be like, okay, open and, and interested, I think is the best way to go about it. For most people, it's a difficult thing to talk about. So it's it's an honor for most people to, to tell you that sort of thing and just treat it with that kind of respect. Are you glad you decided to start talking about it? Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. The more honest I am, the better it is for me. And I still I still do hide it a lot in my day-to-day -day life. You know, if I'm having a hard day, I will often say, oh, I've got a cold or something because, you know, if someone's like, oh, you don't look happy today, I don't want to go well, my anxiety is through the roof or depression's hard today or I had to up my medication. Like that. that's just sort of not how we talk to each other. But certainly the more honest I am with my family and with my friends, the better. You know, when I'm able to say, I'm just having a mental health day and I can't, I can't be your friend at the moment, I think 
think it makes for much better relationships with people to have that level of honesty. I had a lot of people that thought I didn't like them for a long time because I would disappear and not talk to them and to be able to go, that's so not about you. That's just me dealing with my own stuff because that's the other thing, being mentally ill can make one, certainly made me very solipsistic, you know, very, everything was about me. <laughs> you know, if someone was unhappy, I'd caused it. If, if someone didn't talk to me, it was because I was a terrible person and it's helpful to remember that everyone's just thinking about their own life. So for you, one of the happy endings is discovering you're not the centre of the universe. <laughs> Absolutely. And I have to keep remembering that because that is something that happens certainly with depression is you'd end up feeling like you're the only one that's ever gone through it or that you're special in your terribleness. So just being a person and realising that everyone has their own issues is certainly very helpful. Sophie, thanks for coming in and talking to us today on Not What Do You Think? Thank you very much for having me. If you've been affected by a mental illness and you'd like to talk to someone about it, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. You can also look up Lifeline on the internet. They have a website. If you're a journalist and you'd like to know more about reporting mental illness, you can search for Sane Australia or Mindframe on the web. If you like this podcast and you think someone you know might also like it, tell them they should check it out. There are links on our website at fbiradio.com slash think, and there are a bunch of other great FBI podcasts at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Do you have an idea for a show that you think we should be doing? There's a link on that page for you to tell us all about it. Not What You Think is produced by Samira Farah. It was created by Laura Briley, Claire Holland, and me. I'm Zasha Rosen. Thanks for listening this season. If you like Not What You Think, FBI does all sorts of other podcasts, including All the Best with Pip. Hey, I'm Pip, and I host our storytelling show, All the Best, with Michael Bryden. We do docos, features, and fiction. Tune in to FBI Radio at 10.30am every Saturday, or at allthebestradio.com, and anywhere you listen to your podcasts.